0: Sketches from Scripture Presents Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness A teaching series from the stories of the Torah Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. We are doing a series called A Wandering based on the book Numbers, or its Jewish title, the Hebrew title is In the Wilderness. And we all kind of feel like we're in sort of a wilderness, wandering, waiting period right now with everything going on in the world. And we're going to look at some stories from this period of time in Israel's history, and hopefully that'll be something that will give us some. Um, uh, some encouragement and, uh, maybe some challenges, maybe some challenging things to think about. So, um, tell us what you're thankful for, leave that in the comments. And, uh, we're going to start, I guess, uh, if you have a Bible, if you're following along in your own Bible, I'm going to be reading, I'm going to have some things on the screen, but if you do have your own Bible and you're wanting to follow along, I'm in numbers nine is where I'll be starting. And, um, we'll go from there in just a minute. So I am thankful for, uh, my friend David Coggin. He was in the video last night. I called him captain Coggin. That's his, uh, name sometimes, uh, with his ministry. And, um, he reminded me of an idea that I had uh, a little while ago and kind of had forgotten about until earlier today. And he sent me some articles and, um, I'm going to be putting together another little video series, um, just a much shorter one during the day to kind of go over, uh, something that I created last summer with the help of some friends. And, um, anyway, I'm just thankful for him. thankful for him thinking about me and remembering me. Lupos are grateful for this series. I'm glad that you guys have been here for it. I don't know if you watched all of the Genesis series. I think I saw you there for, for several of them. Um, but I hope that this has been not just educational. I mean, this is a class, you know, it's not like sermons or whatever. So I'm glad that um, hopefully you're getting the information, but I hope that it also gives you some things to think about and is, um, you know, like I said, uh, inspirational and challenging. Uh, if we read scripture and walk away the same then I think maybe we haven't actually encountered scripture the way that we were meant to. Uh, again, it goes back to uh, the the memory I have of, of Ted Gobble's sermon. You know, you looking into scripture is like looking in a mirror. And when you walk away, what do you do with that? And so that's my hope for everyone watching tonight. But here's the question. How are you eating during this time of being safer at home? Are you eating healthier? Are you eating more junk food? Is it about the same? Or uh, you want me to mind my own business? Those are sort of the four choices there. I think we're mostly eating healthier here at home. I eat fairly healthy anyway, but um you know, going to five guys and getting a hamburger, even though it's like on my diet, it like fits into it's just easier to kind of do that, even though that's not the healthiest thing and so being here with uh, mom and dad, we're eating moms homemade sourdough bread. She's made some, uh, you know, baked chicken. We've had some lean meat for steak and burgers and like zucchini noodles, spaghetti, lots of fresh fruit and carrots and spinach. And so we've actually been eating pretty good. But, you know, we also have, um, I got a big bag of Mounds candy bars with our last grocery order because dad and I like those. and I guess mom likes them too. Uh, Mom's been breaking out the Girl Scout cookies and we've been eating those. Uh, we had some frozen pizza the other night. We're already sort of scanning the food delivery places to kind of see what we what we want to have just to kind of break it up a little bit. I'm already craving some gondolier pizza in tiramisu. And um, one of my favorite breakfast places is First Watch. I love the French toast there. I just got the email that they shut down all of their restaurants for now, which is uh, somewhat understandable, but a little heartbreaking. And uh, hopefully it doesn't happen to more restaurants or, or we're going to have fewer choices about uh, where to eat out. So I see uh, it's a little mix. We got some people eating healthier, some uh, eating more junk food. Mom says eating seafood, eating everything that we see uh, is uh, very true. Eating popcorn. So Kim and Roger say, which I guess they're hoping that remains sort of morally neutral, that it's sort of up to us to decide, is that healthier or is that junk food? It is corn. That is a vegetable after all. So, um glad to see they are eating their vegetables. Um, and I don't know if you notice this or not, uh, depending on what you eat, but you know, our food becomes us, I mean literally, right so the what the phrase you are what you eat," I mean is really kind of a literal phrase. I mean, the proteins and the sugars and the water and everything that's in your food eventually becomes. You eventually becomes in you, and so you know there was a period of my life, and we'll talk about this a little more later. There's a period of my life where I ate a lot of junk food, and guess what? My body was falling apart. I was really overweight and had all kinds of digestive issues. And um, you know, a, a, a car, a car can run on kerosene, you know, at least for a little bit, you know, for a couple of seconds or something. Anyway, but it's really bad for it. You know, you shouldn't do it. It's supposed to, be, it's because it's meant to run on gasoline. And so, um, I don't know if you've noticed this while you're safer at home, but if you eat a little healthier, do you have more energy? Are you sleeping better? Uh, are the anxiety levels down? You know, that kind of thing. Same goes for maybe a little bit of exercise. Or when you're laying on the couch and watching TV and eating the Girl Scout cookies, you know, do you feel more anxious? Do you feel more depressed? right? Because all these things are connected. I mean, your brain, even your brain that sort of decides some of these things for you, how you're going to feel and how you're going to react to things and your anxiety level and your blood pressure and things like that. I mean, it's all controlled by your brain and your brain's getting its fuel from the same place the rest of you is, you know, it's either getting it from, uh, you know, the bacon cheeseburgers, which is my favorite, or it's getting it from the baked chicken and steamed broccoli, you know? And, um, so what's it, what's it going to do with those? Something to, something to think about. And we're going to, i bring that up because what we're going to look at tonight, the several stories that we're going to look at tonight, all involve food. So the Israelite nation, they have left Egypt and they are now in the wilderness, uh, possibly somewhere in modern day, Northern uh, Saudi Arabia. And they're just basically in the desert. And um, if you, uh, if you've never been over there or you're not really familiar with what the desert is like there in, um, the Northern part of Israel, there are places where if, if we dropped you in the middle of the night out of a helicopter or an airplane and you just sort of parachuted in and, and woke up in the middle of these places in Northern Israel, uh, some of it would seem like West Tennessee or something, you know, you've got the farms and, uh, flowers and trees and, um, it's just a little balmier climate up there, and I I, I think that um, the first time I went, I was I was sort of surprised by how much vegetation and everything there was there. You read the Bible and you think it's all happening in just rocks and caves and things, and it's very prehistoric, and that's just you know not the case. And northern Israel, in particular, is very lush, uh, particularly around the Galilee region. All the water there and the rains um, give it. Um, it's it's not very different from you know Colorado or Utah. Certainly, there's places of desert in those places, but there's also very beautiful forests and and things like that when you get down into southern israel and jordan and that area around the dead sea maybe you've watched a history channel thing on masada or something like that where maybe you've seen around the dead sea and it's they call it the dead sea for a reason i mean it's it's pretty dead around there not just in the water but all around Um, it gets rain light rain a couple of times a year and it's just desert it's not real fine sand like at the beach or something like that, it's it's rocks, it's coarse, it's kind of a, it's kind of these red rocks, and there is vegetation that grows there, um, but it's just little small shrubbery and it's just very little. And the farther south you get, the less and less of that there is. Down in southern Saudi Arabia, where you have the big deserts, I mean that's where you get the real fine sand and the sand dunes and the sandstorms and all that. And so in between is kind of the wilderness, and so it's kind of more like. Or what's around the Dead Sea? There, it's just sort of rocky desert. It's just nothing, hardly growing at all. And this is difficult because you've got two million people. You've got six hundred thousand able-bodied men over twenty, and then you add to that the elderly men, all the women, all the children. Plus, you've got the Irrev Rav, the the riff raff, the the um, just the um, a multitude of just various people that left Egypt with the Israelites. So they're not Israelites, but they're there with them and traveling with them, seeing everything that they're seeing, foreigners, aliens amidst them. And so they're all there. So you got like, you know, two million people, possibly more that are together looking to Moses for answers, for leadership, for spiritual direction. And um, so by the point that we get to here in Numbers nine, which is where I'm going to begin today, um, the they have uh, seen god on mount sinai they've been camped there at mount sinai the tent is going to move for the first time we're going to see that uh here in this passage and um they're going to now begin moving about the desert taking the tabernacle with them wherever they go wherever the cloud leads them, which is sort of the, the the angel of God or the messenger of God, the image of God. This cloud is God's presence. Whenever it lifts up from the tabernacle and moves, they all pack up and move with it and they stop when it stops. And so now they're out in the desert and it's been a while. In fact, Numbers chapter nine, if you're already looking at it, you'll notice the title, the top of this chapter, For if you have a Bible that has uh, titles, it says the second Passover so what does that mean? Well, the Passover, if you'll remember, is uh, how the Israelites avoided being victims of the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, and uh, they made their exodus right after. So this is now one year since they have left Egypt. Remember, they or the original thing that they told Pharaoh was, hey, we're going to go three days into the wilderness to worship our God and come back. That was the original request of Pharaoh. So. Many of them probably packed for a three-day trip. Remember, they they made the unleavened bread uh, that they had to uh, make quickly. They didn't have time for it to rise. They cooked it on the way. Well, it's been a year. All that bread is gone. So the only thing they have to eat now is uh, manna. We'll look at some other options and maybe some things that they had to eat. So we're going to be looking at some of the foodstuffs here in these stories. So let's look at Numbers 9. Let's start at verse 15. And let me see if I have, um, I don't remember how much of this I have uh, titles for. I don't. So I'll come back to the the keynote in just a second. So let's look at Numbers 9. And I'm gonna start in verse 15. And I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And I'll just read. You can listen, or if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can. Numbers 9, 15. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and it appeared like fire above the tabernacle from evening until morning. It remained that way continuously. The cloud would cover it, appearing like fire at night. Whenever the cloud was lifted up above the tent, the Israelites would set out. At the place where the cloud stopped, there the Israelites camped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at the Lord's command, they camped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they camped. So very important here, the presence of the Lord, the visible presence of the Lord is with them at all times, day and night. Even when the cloud stayed over the tabernacle many days, the Israelites carried out the Lord's requirement and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud remained over the tabernacle for only a few days. They would camp at the Lord's command and set out at the Lord's command. Sometimes the cloud remained only from evening until morning. When the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it remained a day and a night, they moved out when the cloud lifted. Whether it was two days, a month, or longer, the Israelites camped and did not set out as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. But when it lifted, they set out. They camped at the Lord's command, and they set out at the Lord's command. They carried out the Lord's requirement according to his command through Moses. And uh, then we're going to skip Numbers chapter 10, but basically it's um, there's these two silver trumpets that are sort of announcing when they're going to move somewhere, when they're going to go, appointed festivals, and um, the, pulling the assembly together, things like this. And they assign some, some people to do that. And then uh, beginning in verse 11 of Numbers 10, we see that they set out on their first move from Sinai to Paran. And there's some different military divisions it goes through everything about how they move so this is sort of their first moving so it's giving you all the details of how they first move sometimes we look at this and think well this is just a real boring lists of things but what, what it's telling you if you can kind of picture it in your mind's eye is sort of how the whole military camp is moving so if if you read this more like you know civil war history or world war ii history or something like that you might kind of understand why it's written the way that it is and um So uh, I'm going to uh, Numbers chapter 10, verse 33. I'm going to read this little part here at the end. They set out from the mountain of the Lord on a three-day journey with the Ark of the Lord's covenant traveling ahead of them for those three days to seek a resting place for them. Meanwhile, the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the Ark set out, Moses would say, Arise, Lord, let your enemies be scattered and those who hate you flee from your presence. When it came to rest, he would say, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. So, again, you have this language, this idea of this three-day journey, which is sort of calling back to the original Exodus. So, we're at the second Passover. We have another three-day journey. So, that sort of now bring you back to mind after everything that has transpired from Exodus, Leviticus, and the first few chapters of Numbers. It's reminding us back again of the early in Exodus, where the Israelites were before the Exodus. They were slaves in Exodus. And that's going to be important for what comes next, Numbers chapter 11. Now, the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. Let's hear about their hardship. When the Lord heard, his anger burned, and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was named Tiberah, because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. And not surprisingly, Tiberah means blaze. The Riffraff among them that there's that word again that irrerav these people that aren't Israelites but came with them from Egypt. The Riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, "Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt, along with the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. My mouth is watering, uh, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. And remember, manna is uh, Hebrew for what is it? So in the beginning, when it first appeared, oh, what is it? Now it's like, ah, what is this stuff, right? You have to eat it all the time. So now Numbers tells us a little more about it. The manna resembled coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bdellium. The people walked around and gathered it. They ground it on a pair of grinding stones or crushed it in a mortar, then boiled it in a cooking pot and shaped it into cakes. It tasted like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. Now, that sounds good to me. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Moses heard the people, family after family, weeping at the entrance of their tents. The Lord was very angry. Moses was also provoked. So Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought such trouble on your servant? Why are you angry with me? Why do you burden me with all these people? I think there's probably many parents asking the Lord this right now. Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth? So you should tell me, carry them at your breast as a nursing mother carries a baby to the land that you swore to give their ancestors. Uh, Notice Moses is like God did before. Moses is sort of excluding himself from the relationship. Hey, these are your people, (laughs) right? You didn't give them to me. Didn't you make a promise to them, their ancestors, right? Moses is kind of excluding himself in the language there. Where can I get meat to give all these people? For they are weeping to me. Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. They are too much for me. If you're going to treat me like this, please kill me right now if I have found favor with you and don't let me see my misery anymore. Uh, Moses being possibly more dramatic than the Israelites themselves. So now into verse 16, the Lord answers Moses. The Lord answered Moses, bring me 70 men from Israel known to you as elders and officers of the people. Take them to the tent of meeting and have them stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there. I will take some of the spirit who is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it by yourself. So here how God responds to Moses. He hears Moses's issue. Moses is his chosen guy, his leader. And so he comes down and he says, okay, I'm going to give you some help. Now here's what he says to the people. Verse 18, tell the people. Consecrate yourselves in readiness for tomorrow, and you will eat meat, because you wept in the Lord's hearing, who will feed us meat? We were better off in Egypt. The Lord will give you meat, and you will eat. You will eat not for one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and wept before him. Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses replied, I'm in the middle of a people with 600,000 foot soldiers. Yet you say I will give them meat and they will eat for a month. If flocks and herds were slaughtered for them, would they have enough? Or if all the fish in the sea were caught for them, would they have enough? The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm weak? Now you will see whether or not what I have promised Will happen to you. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He brought seventy men from the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the spirit who was on Moses and placed it, placed the spirit on the seventy elders. As the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they never did it again. Two men had remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, the spirit rested on them. They were among those listed, but they had not gone out to the tent, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my lord, stop them. But Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. A wind sent by the Lord came up and blew quail in from the sea. It dropped them all around the camp. They were flying three feet off the ground for about a day's journey in every direction. The people were up all that day and night and all the next day gathering the quail. The one who took the least gathered 60 bushels and they spread them out all around the camp while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the Lord's anger burned against the people, and the Lord struck them with a very severe plague. So they named that place Kibroth Hata'avah, because there they buried the people who had craved the meat. From Kibroth Hattaava. the people moved on to Hazaroth and remained there. So this phrase, Kibroth Hata'avah, means literally graves of craving. Graves of craving. And sadly, I can't think of a term more apt for our culture, particularly our culture before everything started shutting down. Graves of of craving. We consume quickly and completely. We don't savor, we devour. We don't taste, we hoard. And it's killing us. And it starts where it starts here in this story. It starts with complaining. In this story, it's not the Israelites who begin, it's the riffraff that are with them. And the Israelites pick up immediately and begin complaining as well. I have to confess and repent here. I'm very guilty of complaining as someone who is involved in design and art and, and writing. I'm constantly editing. Um, I'm always looking at what I'm working on and trying to pick out what could be made better, what could be improved, you know, uh, what are the corners that could be rounded off. And sometimes I take that uh, way of thinking into my daily life and I don't follow through with what can I do to make this better? Instead, I just stop right at sort of the assessment. What's wrong here? What's wrong with all this? Oh, this is wrong. That's wrong. And rather than being quiet and doing action, I I just complain. And so I have to confess and repent that. And I I suspect many of you um, are are guilty of that as well. I I think every person uh, would have to confess and repent of just of complaining. And at the time that we're in now, you know, I've had my complaints uh, whether I've expressed them or whether it's just been a sort of a complaining attitude or a negative attitude, uh, I have to confess and, re- and repent of that. Let's look at the situation here and let's understand the true nature of their complaint. So they're complaining and that's what sort of kicks everything off. What are they complaining about? Well, like we looked at the end of Numbers 10, we had that three-day journey, right? And that happened before back in Exodus 16. So in Exodus 16, after they they have left Egypt, but before God shows up on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. In Exodus 16, they eat manna and quail. At this point, they're a month into their three day journey, right? So they've gone on a three day journey. Isn't that they're a month into it? The bread they took with them must have been depleted by that time already. And God gives them the manna and he brings them quail. And that was surely a lovely and beautiful time for everyone. And it was quail that God freely gave them along with the manna. But that was before Sinai. That was, you know, God providing for them to show them who he is. The only thing they'd really seen so far at that point is being, is the, you know, the plagues and being saved from the plagues, which is huge. The parting of the Red Sea and, and the defeat of um, Pharaoh's army, which is big, but they had not seen God on the mountain. They had not really seen his presence yet. And so at that time, in Exodus 16, God gives them the manna, he gives them the quail. And, and why? He's providing for them to show them who he is and what has transpired since then? What has transpired since the last time they had quail? Well, they've gotten water from the rot. So he's provided that also. They've defeated the Amalekites. So they're winning military skirmishes, even though they're just were slaves a month ago. Uh, they witnessed the Lord on Sinai in Exodus 19. They received the 10 commandments, the law. They they experienced their own weakness with the golden calf and they experienced the uh, the punishment and the discipline that the correction that comes from that. Uh, they see the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle and they experience the joy of joining together and bringing all the materials together to, to build the tabernacle and everything in it. They see the Lord, um, uh, his judgment against Nadab and Abihu. They see the pillar leading the entire camp visibly. They see the cloud during the day, the fire at night. And now they here in Numbers 9, they've experienced a second Passover, a reminder of God's salvation from Egypt and death a year ago they've seen all this and the cloud is right there all they have to do is look toward the tabernacle and there they can see the visible presence of God with them and so now when they complain they just really have no have no excuse and what are what are their complaints well their complaints back up here at the beginning of 11 is uh, it's very interesting they say remember the free fish we ate in Egypt Uh, Okay, you mean the free fish that you ate as slaves? (laughs) You know, the, the, the fish that the Egyptians gave you to barely keep you alive so that you could continue to work for them for free? Because they had captured you and imprisoned you and you were their slaves? That free fish? Is that the free fish that you miss? Along with the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Okay, a cucumber or a melon maybe, but like onions? This is what you're complaining about? now. Oh, we don't have any onions? It's disgusting. Okay, what what are they eating instead? Well, they have the manna. The manna takes, tastes like pastry cooked in the finest oil. I don't know what your favorite dessert is, but I mentioned one of mine earlier, tiramisu from the gondolier. Man, I love tiramisu. Can you imagine if God said, I'm going to give you tiramisu three meals a day and you'll never gain weight and your your clothes will never wear out and uh, you'll always be healthy for 40 years. And all you got to do is just eat this tiramisu three times a day, seven days a week. Uh, Would I get tired of eating tiramisu? I don't know. I probably would, I guess. But it's just hard to imagine, right? It's hard to imagine that they have tiramisu and they go, boy, I just really wish I had some onions and garlic. That would be a lot better. It's kind of a strange complaint. Why are they doing that? Well, you know, I, I guess the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. I mean, These were all things that they could probably grow even as slaves. They could grow these things themselves. They had control over it. They had ownership of it. They had their hands on it. They could see it in the ground. The manna appeared with the dew in the morning and didn't show up at all on the Sabbath. And it it was something that was out of their control. I suspect that probably has a lot to do with it. So did they have anything else to eat besides the manna? Was the manna the only thing they had to eat? Well, we've already shown that they probably ran out of bread, right? If we look back at Leviticus 1, we see God telling them, here's, you're going to sacrifice you know, bulls and rams and goats and these kinds of things for the offerings. So they must have had these things with them to be able to make these sacrifices, right? In fact, Exodus 9, if you go all the way back to Exodus 9, it shows they had their own livestock, the plague of the livestock. It says that God differentiated between the Egyptians' livestock and the livestock of Israel. That means that even as slaves, they were allowed to own their own livestock. We see that they took all that, With them in Exodus 12, they left with all their livestock and they were not alone. This riffraff, or uh, one version calls them an ethnically diverse crowd, which I think is probably being pretty generous to the original Hebrew. This arevrav, this riffraff went along. They took their livestock as well. So that's a question. Why didn't they eat livestock? Man, they can have steak. They can have lamb chops. You know, why didn't they do that? Why didn't they eat their livestock? So the first answer we have to give to that question, very good question. Why didn't they eat their livestock or did they eat their livestock? The first thing that we have to say to that is we don't know. And we don't know because scripture doesn't say. So that's the real answer. Okay, that's the first answer that we have to put out. But if we're to enter the territory of speculation, there's some good clues in scripture and in history. And if we just sort of think it through as a thought experiment, that make a lot of sense and help us understand the nature of this complaint. So let's enter that territory. Again, scripture doesn't tell us. Why they didn't eat their livestock, but before we venture into speculation, here's what we can think about. So, if especially if you're part of the riffraff, right? You just left your home. Your livestock represents everything that you own. That's it. That's all you have. You eat that. You die. You don't have anything else. You become impoverished. So you don't want to eat that. That's that's your money. That's everything you have to trade with and barter with, right? Uh, if you're uh, an Israelite, you know, as a slave, you were probably, you know, fed by the Egyptians again, because if you don't eat, you don't die. Right. And uh, dead Hebrews don't make a lot of bricks. Right. So um, the Hebrews were more interested in eating what the Egyptians gave them. And so they probably didn't eat their own livestock because, again, that was sort of like a, a monetary wealth for them. Right. So um, here's another thing to think about. I was just talking the other night, my dad was talking about bear hunting, right? And just what I was gleaning from his stories, not that hard to shoot a bear, right? Uh, There's certain places where they just go through all the time and you can just park yourself there and bam, pop them right in the neck. Or uh, you can hang some garbage and they'll come up and sniff around and, uh, you know, as long as you don't scare them off, you could probably shoot one pretty easy. That's not the hard part of bear hunting. The hard part of bear hunting is carrying the bear out of the woods because you've got this you know, a couple hundred pound animal that has to be taken, even if it's a short distance, sometimes it's uphill, it could take a couple of hours, even with, with um, healthy grown men. So now imagine you're a family and you decide, well, we're going to have steak tonight. And so you slaughter one of your cattle. Well, then what are you going to do? How much meat a, a, one cow makes? It's a lot of meat, right? What are you going to do, put it in the freezer? No, you're, you're in the wilderness in the year uh, 1450 or so BC, right? there's no, there's no freezer. There's no refrigerator. You can't eat it all that night. You wouldn't want to anyway. So what do you have to do with the rest? Well, you've got to salt it if you're going to preserve it. Well, okay. Let's say that you decide to salt it. Where are you going to get the salt? Do you have salt with you? Do you have enough salt to be constantly salting giant portions of meat and livestock? Uh, even if you have, um, Uh, uh, even if you do kill your livestock and decide to eat some, even if you do find a way to salt it and preserve it, I mean, you really want to eat beef jerky for the next three months, which is essentially what you'd be doing, right? What do you want to eat? Do you want to eat a steak and potatoes? Or do you want to eat beef jerky and potato chips? I mean, they're made of the same things, right? Very different though. So what you have is people that wanted fresh meat. That's why they wanted the fish, because you eat the fish right then. Small meal, it's fresh. That's why they missed Egypt because they could eat the fresh meat right there. And they wanted the bread. You know why? Because they could eat the bread while they waited on their meat to be done. They wanted to eat while they waited to eat. So it's their stomachs. It's their control. It's their known. It's the known entities that they really wanted. And this is an important thing to remember um, from this story, is that the Israelites preferred a known slavery to an unknown freedom. They preferred a known slavery to an unknown freedom. That is a very difficult and challenging thing for us to have to think about. Do we complain? Do we get upset and anxious in times like this because we preferred the known slavery, to this unknown freedom. Don't we have a lot of unknown freedom right now? I mean, how long is this going to last? How much longer are we going to be here? What can I do with this time? We have this unknown freedom, and some of us would prefer to go back to, even though we were enslaved by our work and by the pace of life, by our busyness, we'd rather have the known slavery than the unknown freedom. They wanted the best, so they want the food that they can eat right now. They want good food, and they want to eat it now. The manna, it doesn't cut it for them, right? And so there's a phrase in my business, good, fast, cheap, safe, pick two. So when we're talking about building sets or something like that for a film, um, good, fast, cheap, safe, pick two, or as my friend Nelson says, pick one. Uh, they wanted it fast and they wanted it good. And so it was going to be dangerous and it was going to come at a cost. They wanted the best and they wanted it now. So we see what the Lord did. The Lord gave them quail, but this time it was not the same as it was back in Exodus 16. Why? Because they did not trust the Lord. That's what this ultimately boils down to is their inability to trust the Lord. And that leads just to graves of craving. Despite all the evidence, they put their trust in their own wealth, into what they could see, into what they could taste, their desires, their pleasures, their convenience. That that was their God's desire, pleasure, convenience. Desire, pleasure, convenience. That was their God. And they wound up in graves of of craving. This is why I say this is very apt for our culture, certainly pre-shutdown culture, just desire and convenience, consumption, craving. Are are these our, are these our guides? Is this what we reach out for when we want to be solaced, when we want comfort? Something that we engage in quite a bit are these two things, sorting and consuming. The internet has really made us uh, do this quite a bit, sorting and consuming. All day long, we're deciding, okay, do I wanna follow this person? Do I wanna friend this person on Facebook? Uh, Do I wanna read this tweet, this article? Do I wanna click this link? What channel will I watch? Which fast food restaurant will we eat at? Does this spark joy? Who are my real friends? These kinds of questions. Most of these decisions end up being quick and shallow, and we're eternally critical Creatures of complaining, both in thought, word, and um, uh, all three, thought, word, and deed. And the problem comes when we bring this sorting to important things like relationships, with friends and family, our, our Bible reading, our prayer. When we bring this idea of sorting to these important things, we make a real mess of things. Do you only spend time with people you like, with people who are like you? Or do you make time for everyone, even the people that can be tiring, or don't hold the same interests? When you're doing your Bible study, do you you read the verse of the day, or do you read it like a book, seeing what the story has in store for you? Are your prayers are they more like tweets, post-it notes, or are they love letters? We spend so much time deciding and choosing and sorting. We train our brain against long-term ingestion of a single thing, all right? So it's um, we binge-watch TV shows, right? We stream a billion albums on Spotify. We save all of our pictures to the cloud. You can't lose one, right? We snap, tweet, post, share every little thought, reactions, snippets of concerts, outfit of the day, man crush, woman crush, right? We ingest all day long ingest ingesting isn't the problem it's what we ingest it's all junk food it's chips and jerky you know it will sustain us but you know you can't live on that so as i said before i used to weigh 245 pounds and i'm going to show you a picture this is me and dad from that time this is probably that when i was at my heaviest without the beard but i still had a little hair left and uh my friends call this the chubby bunny picture. And uh, even though I've gained a little sense, I mean, you can see how much how much weight I've lost. And I really, honestly, haven't worked that hard. I've had to be dedicated to what I, I pay attention to what I eat. In fact, what I eat models a lot of what we looked at. and And, you know, we kind of skipped over a lot of it. But in Exodus and Leviticus, the food laws. Uh, The food that they were allowed to eat, what was clean and what was unclean, trying to stay away from things that are unclean and eat more things that are clean. I still eat bacon. You know, we had shrimp the other night. I'm eating Girl Scout cookies and candy bars, but I'm trying to eat as healthy as I can because I recognize when I eat the junk, my body falls apart. But when I eat healthy, I have energy. I sleep well. I feel better. I'm less prone to depression. The same is true of our spirit. Our spirit. Right. Look at what goes in your eyes and ears and mind all day. You know, if you're just consuming Netflix and the Internet and all the negative news and the bad news and um, just watching all the death tolls and all this kind of stuff, that's what you're consuming all day. Look at your spiritual life. And no wonder it's anemic. You're you're spiritually starved. Uh, I found this great quote in Relevant Magazine. And um, I'm going to read it to you and then we'll we'll wrap up. Uh, So he's talking about this uh, constant consuming and decision-making and the the sorting and consuming we were just talking about. He says, if this is the internal dialogue of many in the church, and I think it is, then our constant reminders to have a quiet time or serve their neighbors can become really frustrating when they don't see progress, especially when when, when they're used to Amazon bringing whatever they want to their door in two days. We're programmed to want immediate satisfaction, but that's simply not how spiritual growth works. We want a microwavable faith, but the one we've been given is a crockpot faith. Low and slow is the key to following Jesus. It's how you get that unmistakable flavor of someone who has simmered in the flavors of Christ. Isn't that a great just image, just a word picture? We have to constantly remind those we disciple that following Jesus is a lifelong pursuit. What they're after is a life that's more and more obedient to Jesus every day, even if they have trouble seeing the daily change. The good news is we're not alone in our pursuit of holiness. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That Low and slow, simmering, crockpot faith. That's what we should all be after. And right now, we have the time to do it. We have the time to really work on our spiritual diet during this time. We have the time now, we have the freedom now, to build a discipline in this wilderness period that we're in. To build a discipline so that when the wilderness period is over, and we go back to something like a normal life we can carry those disciplines with us so that we don't spend our our waking life sorting and consuming and complaining and growing spiritually lethargic and anemic but instead we can be spiritually healthy spiritually strong spiritually energetic spiritually productive so those are the questions I'll leave with you tonight. What is your spiritual diet and what things can you do to make it better? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.